In an environment of health disparities amplified by a national pandemic and racial injustice, Providence is committed to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in our communities, workplaces, schools, and more. What happens now? How do we cope? What's the impact on our overall health and mental wellness? With the Culture of Health show, we focus on what the future of healthcare looks like in today's changing culture. Today, we'll discuss how we turn the conversation of culture and healthcare into lasting, meaningful action. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended nor it is implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice. We will be discussing real-world issues including race, anxiety, and depression. So if you're struggling, this program may not be right for you. You may want to revisit it at a later time. If you do need someone to talk to, there's always someone available to help you. Just reach out to the crisis text line, which means you text the word TALK to 741741 or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK and you'll be able to talk to someone who can help you. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is fighter Tyron Woodley, and we're talking about mental health. So let's get started by welcoming Tyron to the show and having him tell us just a little bit about himself. Hi, my name is Tyron Woodley. I'm a former UFC welterweight champion of the world. Um, I'm a father, I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm happy to be here with you guys today. So let's start really easily. What are some things you do every day to take care of your mental health? Some things I do every day to take care of my mental health is really take care of myself. I think self-care is one of the most important things. And especially, you know, during times like now, you're forced to actually deal with some of your own issues, deal with, you know, some things that you like about yourself, some things that you don't. So I think taking care of yourself. Like today I woke up and I'm like, I'm going to use this really expensive shampoo and I'm going to take a shower for a long time and I'm going to put on this ridiculous robe and in the house and nobody's going to see it but me, but guess what? It makes me feel good. So I think taking care of yourself, pampering yourself, because we're so quick to be hard on ourselves. And I think that's a lot of part, you know, part of fueling some of this mental health. Is there anything that you do like meditation or yoga or anything physically that helps you kind of focus on your mental health? Um, there's a lot of things I've done to help me focus on my mental health. Um, I never done them all at the same time. Um, it was a big part of um, the end of my wrestling career in college. We did a lot of meditation and visualization. Um, sometimes I utilize that when I'm training and I may be doing a hard rep. Or I may have a couple minutes left in the round. And I always think about something that's tougher and think about what I've been through to make me be able to endure and just a mindset. So that's sometimes I use kind of visualization. Um, recently, I've been into really, really, really good music and it's coming from all different artists, all different nationalities, all different genres, but it makes me feel good. And, and one and probably the most weird thing, but one of the dopest things, I've never been in my home in the fall. I've been traveling so much. Uh, I've been, I was on a plane every week for five years straight. Um, my kids, I didn't really spend a ton of consistent time with them. I was there every week, but I spent so much time, money, energy on planes um, trying to bounce back and forth, but now I get to see the leaves fall. And I sit on my porch and I literally watch leaves damn near daily. And that's like my shit. So for me, it's like, it's just, just sitting down, slowing things down, really taking time for yourself, um, listening to things that make you feel good. What makes me feel good may not make you feel good, but once we recognize that it's okay that your selection is different than mine, I think it just puts us puts us in a more positive positive space. I think one of the things we find with mental health is being able to talk about it gets people started on a journey. 
So when you were growing up, did you feel like mental health was something you could talk about with your family or with your friends? Was it something that you just felt comfortable, I don't know, just sharing? No, you know, when I grew up, mental health was something that you did not talk about with your family or friends. Your friends thought she was soft. You know, I grew up in a, I grew up in a neighborhood, so, you know, we didn't talk about mental health. That was weakness. And in our family, anybody who would ever think about committing suicide or whatever, something like that, that was weakness. So it's like, all right, you want to jump off the roof here? Here, here go, here go a rope. Here, what? That was a, that was a tough, um, the tough, hardened, tough parenting that I received because that's all they knew. They taught me what they knew. They grew up in a hood. They grew up, you know, literally in a position where they were gangsters, and that's what they did. They didn't have any time. It's kind of similar to a soldier. When you're out there on the battlefield, you can't always think about your wife, your daughter, your loved one, the girl you just met before you got deployed. You got to think about the task at hand. And that's kind of how it was built. And then when you think about, you know, kind of how my path went, I was an athlete. So now it's more rigorous discipline and, you know, trying to put you in a position where you're kind of a robot. And for me, I needed to know first it was okay to cry. It was okay not to feel good. It's okay to need help. It's okay not to be okay. And you talking to someone and trying to figure out, unpack all the stuff in your life that's that's making you the way you are or making you the way that you're not, um, it's okay to unpack that with somebody and, and you're not weak because you do it. So how are you changing then that for your kids? How are you making sure that your kids know it's okay to talk about it and that it's not a weakness? You know, for me, what I do to make my kids know that it's okay to talk about mental health and also to know that it's not a weakness, I talk to them about it. I talk to them about my emotions and I get them to express themselves. Did you like that? No, I didn't like that. My three-year-old son, he eats a lot. So we joked him, joked him, and call him greedy, greedy, mastiti. And he said, I don't like that. I said, why don't you like that? I said, did it hurt your feelings? He said, yes, it hurts my feelings, right? And I said, well, I'm sorry that we hurt your feelings and I'll quit saying that to you. He may not have been old enough or mature enough to tell me that it hurt his feelings. But had he not said yes to me asking if it hurt his feelings, I would have said, does it make you laugh? I would have gave him a whole bunch of lists of things that I think personally it could make him feel like, and I'll let him tell me. So now I know. So I think expressing your feelings, you know, my, my, my nine-year-old is a teddy bear. Sometimes he get hit with a corner of a, a door handle. He probably could tough it out. But he, he's in the middle, so he wants that attention. If you cry, what am I going to give you? I'm going to give you attention. And that's okay. It's okay for him to hug on me. Uh, my, my oldest son is 17. So I got every age group to practice this on. And he was like, I gave everybody a hug. And I said, look, you can feel the love go from my heart to your heart. And it was like a the inside thing. So my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my nine-year-old, they're all laughing. And then my I said, um, I told my oldest son, I said, well, TJ too old for that. And he said, I knew you was going to say that. I said, you know, I was going to say what? He said, I knew you was going to say I was too old. So he was trying to tell me at 17, I still want a hug too. You know what I mean? I still need love too. So then I gave him a hug. But um, that's something that I wasn't taught. And I'm just being really blessed to have a good mother and a good, you know what I mean, system of family that we express and we talk, whether it's good or bad. But now it's helped me. But if I had not, there's nobody going around schools talking to us about, expressing yourself and talking to your kids and you know there's nobody doing that so for me i'm just thankful that i've had some good people around me and um you know i want my kids to have more than what i had and i want them to be successful and i want them to help out this world you know as much as they can and um that's what I, that's what i'm here for oh that's beautiful i like that you can feel the love from my heart to yours you um, really can though i sound funny but you can actually feel 
I don't, I'm, I don't get into the universes and energy and all that's for people that believe in that. I'm not against it, but I'm telling you, I felt something for real. And then my 17 year old did it. He felt it. But just think like, I know it's a lot of research about hugging, right? Like if you hug X amount of times for X amount of seconds, it does something, right? It can release certain type of stressors or whatever the case. That's your feel. You know I mean, I'm not gonna act like I'm in that in that bubble, but I'm pretty sure there's research behind it. And we tear each other down real quick, real fast, daily. Like whether it's through clicks or in real life, but we don't really just hug. It's kind of weird, right? <laughs> oh, it's the thing I miss the most in the pandemic is I'm a hugger. Like I hug everybody. I tell people all the time, I don't know you, but I'm hugging you. I hug people in airports. And not hugging people and going like a week at a time without that is really hard. It really is. Yeah. I'm not um, with it. I will tell you that uh, Work to Be Well is doing what you're talking about. We actually have people in the schools. We started in Texas, but we have people in the schools who are just encouraging people and kids to talk about it and just being for them or there for them. And it's 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 really making a big difference. So, um, hey. well, my, my next question for you is, you know, if you grew up kind of in this community where you didn't talk about it, but you are so clearly okay talking about it now and you have been, what really prompted you to do that? What was the change? At what point did you really start focusing on your mental health and then talking about it? I mean, growing up in the environment or neighborhood that I grew up in, it was not really acceptable and it really just didn't happen where people talked about mental health and they talked about, you know, quite frankly, just not being okay. And for me, I think what prompted me is really spirituality because I feel like my entire journey in life has really been aligned and God's kind of really ordered me. I fell off to the side a couple of times. I took a couple of lessons, but my heart has always been in the right place. And I think because of that, I see things a little bit differently, but I, I as I'm feeling it, I really know that it's not normal. You know what I mean? Because I've been through a lot of stuff in my life you know, crazy stuff that people couldn't even imagine, but I'm still here and I'm still willing to love and I'm still, you know what I mean? I don't give up the thought of like things that society makes us think not possible. They don't think love is possible. They don't think a committed relationship is possible. They don't think that you can actually achieve these goals you set out. Everything that we do, every goal that we make, the outside looking in, society tells us uh, how long is it going to be until you ruin that diet? How long are they going to be married until they get a divorce? How many, oh, this cool right now, but how long into this? We're waiting. We're sitting there with popcorn. And that's that's something that we just need to change as a, as a you know human race. That's so true. You just, you kind of just touched on it. You're talking about how we're always waiting for people to fail, right? Or people to lose. Your whole profession is based on half the people want you to win and half the people want you to lose for the most part. So how do you, how does mental health factor into your sport, your career? I mean, mental health and the way that it factors into my sport is that my sport is not really a sport. I mean, I hate to break the news to you. My sport is an entertainment. Just because you're the best fighter in the world, I mean, you're going to be fighting in the world championship fight. Um, if you're the best fighter and you so happen to fight the right fighters at the right time, you have enough followers and you got enough juice behind you and enough people going to watch you fight, you may potentially possibly could, would have, should have, could have fall into a world championship fight that you still got to win against somebody else that's trying to tear your head off. So those variables itself, getting ready for a press conference, getting ready for a media tour, getting ready for a training camp, and it's not one sport. So now you think about the boxing, the wrestling, the grappling, the kickboxing, and then you got to do the mental warfare. He's at the press conference saying that he's going to eat your kids, and he's over here saying that, you know, I got inside information on your training camp. So you got to play this game. And then you still got to have a relationship with the promotion. Some many are not... I mean, since the beginning of combat sports, it hasn't always been positive between the fighter and the promoter. 
You know what I mean? So then you have that battle. And on top of that, you got fans with instant access to us. They can click us. They can comment. They can watch it live. They can get on our DMs. They can comment below. They can make memes. They can make pages. They can do whatever they want to. So you deal with all those things. And then what what, what makes us different, I think, than any other sport, any other sport, is that it's so many different ways to win or lose a fight. You can be winning a fight and get cut with an elbow that you didn't see coming, the blood can stop a fight. You can get kicked in the head. You can go a fight without getting punched at all and get taken down and get put in a submission. But more importantly than that, you may only get one, two, or three times a year to do it. So every every fight is a Super Bowl to us. Every fight is a, the NBA Finals because they may get 50, 60 games, 100 games in baseball, 10, 15 games in football, you may get one at most, two. I've been 18 months, 12 months in between fights. So you may get that one chance to turn up, and it's always based on your last performance. It's always based upon what they remember from you last. And if you don't give them consistent bells in a row, that's mental. That's that's mentally, you know, I, I get in bomb. I wish your mom get every single day. I get 15, 20, 30 a day. My requested emails are 200 a day, every single day. Sometimes I go through, sometimes I don't. But if I really allow that to affect me, racial stuff, you know what I mean? Things about the promotion, things about my performance, things about me as a parent, things about my kids, things about my relationship, things about my personal life, uh, things about my team, my coaches, my training partners. And if you don't reply, they go deeper and deeper. And they try to go, then they go in religion. Then they go with your daughter. Then, you know what I mean? It never stops. But if they were sitting side by side, Mary, you think they'll say one word? No, they won't. <laughs> But that's the luxury. So long, long, long winded way of saying that mental health and our sport of, of mixed martial arts, I think, is probably the sport that we need to keep the closest eye on. Well, I think, you know, we, we think that, too, because also it's one of the sports that you take a lot of hits to the head and that absolutely impacts people's mental health. But you know what you just said that I had never thought about was. You might prepare and train for 18 months and then somebody gets knocked out in the first 10, 20 seconds. That has to be a big blow. So talk to me a little bit about the highs and lows of, of winning versus losing and how that impacts your mental health. You know, for me, um, my fight career has always been more than just fighting. It's always been something that I struggle with. Whether this camp may have been temptation, that camp may have been focus, this camp may have been um, endurance. I had some turnover in my gym and I had to prevail throughout. It's always been a lesson. Sometimes you get tired of being tested. And that's a lesson in itself, how to keep pushing, how to keep pressing on when you constantly think that your faith is being tested. It's just really patience. And for me, when I think about the highs, I think about being at the top and winning world championships. During the time where I had went five years without being beaten, three years as a world champion, beat all the best fighters and was really on my way to be the greatest of all time, which I'm still on my way to be that. Um, I was, my life was a freaking mess. I don't know if I can use the words I really want to use, but my life was literally a tornado and everybody thought I had everything figured out and everybody thought everything was so perfect. I was making so much money. I was this and the other. And really I was empty. I was void and I was just really just going off adrenaline. My whole life was just boost off of, I was riding away from the last big, you know what I mean? Last big wave. And then boom, another wave came up and boom, another wave came up. And I was and I was I was thinking that those were blessings and I was thinking I was blessed. But I really was was I was reaping the harvest from the seeds I had planted five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago that was good seeds. And I was just reaping at that same moment. 
So I told myself it was different. I can live like I want to. But when I lock the octagon, that's a different world. It all goes in there. You don't go in, you don't go in there and leave your spirit and your conscience out. So I feel like my last three fights, when I had performances where I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience where I wasn't moving, I wanted to punch and I didn't punch. I was telling myself not to back up and I was backing up. I had the three best training camps, the most focused. I cut people out. I got a new phone. I went to Thailand. You know what I mean? I brought training partners in. I utilized my own gym. I boosted my cardio 6 a.m. every morning. I was on a bike 20, 30 miles. I listened to audiobooks. You know what I mean? I was connecting back to God closer. And I go out there and I still perform. And I was confused. Why? I did everything right. I didn't have sex for X amount of weeks. And to me, that was the ultimate sacrifice. And I still lost. But it told it tells me that. The path that we think we are supposed to have is never a straight one. And we can't dictate. If we knew when the bumps were going to be coming, then we wouldn't need faith. So it tells me that no matter what I did in these last three camps, don't get discouraged. Do it again. Add more to it. And try your best to make the pass the pass and move forward in your next fight. Go out there and just do it because you can. Don't do it because people will expect it. Don't do it because you want to show everybody you still got it. Don't do it because, you know what I mean, they're calling you old down. Don't do it because you're a former champion. You got to show everybody you need a belt to solidify you. Do it because God gave you the gifts to do it. Do it because you're an explosive individual. This is the way you live. This is the way you fight. This is the way you train. This is who I'm a champion. That's who I am. Winning championships is what I did. But I was already a champion before I even got the gold. So that's the mentality that I've formed. And it took months and it took months and I'm still building it. But being down for this pandemic forced me. I, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have separated myself from toxic, you know, situations that didn't support my, um, what I said my end goal was and my goals were. It didn't support it. But I watched myself do it. And I think that's what we all do. We think we so far in the direction that we can't come back to the line. You know what I mean? Why is talking about mental health important to you? Why why are you lending your voice to this cause? Um, talking about mental health is important to me because me personally, I went through issues of just having mental health issues with, you know, where it was a lot of weight on me, a lot of pressure. I had 20 plus people that their whole livelihood is based on me funding their salaries. And me winning and losing is not just a win and loss in the check home. I got five kids that are dependent on me. I got four different homes I'm supporting, 20 people that are employed by me, and a whole movement and wave that I'm the captain of. So when I win and lose, we all win and lose. And when you have that kind of pressure and then you have, you know, the quote-unquote politics that, that are um, very present in the sport and you have the fans and you have the pressure and you have the sponsors, the endorsers, the the the, the media and all the other things that I do, you know, I don't just fight. I do music. I do podcasts. I do broadcasts. I do television. I do um, comedy. I do everything you can think of, music, acting, anything within the arts. I'm just an artist. So I'm going to do all those things. Like even this, I want to use my favorite mug for my favorite place to analyze with my favorite iced coffee using my favorite Chick-fil-A ice, which I went ahead and had to get the ice in the house because for me, Everything is art. If you watch me make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, to you it may be a peanut butter jelly sandwich, but to me, I'm going to paint the peanut butter to every corner. You know what I mean? And that's just the way I live. You know what I mean? <clears throat> I like it. I like it. And now I want a peanut butter sandwich. 
you kind of touched on it earlier, but let's dig in a little bit deeper. So in your industry, your entertainment, your sports industry, what kind of things are you seeing right now and have you seen in the past that are really reflective of racial tension or, or racism in general? Um, you know, when I, when I look into entertainment, I mean, cause whether, like I said before, me doing mixed martial arts is really not as much of a sport as you guys believe it's more of entertainment. So when I say entertainment, that can be fighting, that can be movies, that can be being a recording artist, actor, producer, writer, whatever the case is in entertainment. What I find is that things as a child, when you don't have a good sense of awareness of who you are and identity, and you allow someone to tell you who you are, whether they're saying your skin complexion means you're inferior or you're great if your hair is nappy or you, whatever this case may be, when you don't have a strong sense of awareness of who you are, you allow people to tell you what you should do, what you should wear, how you should speak, uh, what things you should do and what you shouldn't. I see that no matter how much money people make, how many records they sell, how many Oscars they win, if you don't have that core of who you are and the full knowledge of who that person is and how that looks on the bigger scheme of things, I've seen a lot of people fold. People that you were just like, man, it hurts your feelings just to see somebody that you see in a space that they're exalted so high, but they just just succumb to that peer pressure. Or they did that because this person said this, or they you know wanted to get the clout. And that's that's the thing about Hollywood that really disgusts me. The really the fair other people, um, the industry, the preconceived notions that people have about you before they meet you. Um, flaky is the easiest and best word I can explain when people just are not really who they are. They're perpetrating a, an image based upon what they think they need to. Maybe maybe it's to get something from you. Maybe it's to um, try to get you to allow them in your circle, but it's always for their game. And I think that's just a flaw, a character flaw. And I think if you do that over and over again for so many years, it's going to produce some some stuff in you, some junk in your head that that's not good, because you have told yourself you're thirty different people. At this point in time, you were a person that wore a triple XL T-shirt and let your pants hang down. During this point in time, you would put a hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry on you. At this time, you were at the cigar bar wearing five thousand dollars suit. At this time, not you know what I mean, whatever society said at that moment, now you were. I'm the same person no matter what. You know what I mean? Like, I'll ask my 17-year-old son, am I wearing something I don't supposed to be wearing for my age group? And if he said no, then I'm good. <laughs> do you think the entertainment industry owes it to society to do better portrayals of minority characters as well as talking about mental health in a good light? I feel like, I feel like entertainment and society or production or movies, they don't, they don't have a, a duty and a right to really do anything besides produce good films. Sometimes the film is going to portray something that's a reality. Sometimes it's going to be a figment of somebody's imagination. Sometimes it's going to be part true. I think once you start to stifle and give people uh, requirements on what they do, you stifle their creativity. So anything's in the art, I, let, I think you should allow that. Like my music doesn't have to reflect mental health. It doesn't have to reflect... Um, you know, serenity, peace, love, joy, prosperity. It can be me going in the club and buying a table if I feel that's what I want to say at the moment. But I do feel like individuals themselves, if God gave us all gifts, I feel like we're all gifted those gifts to basically be a light. And if you go out there and you get success through being a recording artist, clearly as day, Beyonce was made, created 
to perform, to be an artist, to be an entertainer, to be someone that everybody said, man, I know she got to get the voice. That's her light. I felt in her position, it would be good to try to reach out because some young person that wants to sing or wants to be an entertainer may not have the courage. And I feel like through her, they can probably be inspired. And I feel like individually, we all, no matter what, if you're the best teacher, best lawyer, best doctor, best um, sanitizer, best freaking any any position, I think you should really try to let your light show. But I wouldn't, I don't know where to draw the line that when you try to make people give a better reflection of of African-Americans or, or better spin on mental health, because mental health is a dark area. It may not be a good spin on it. Some things that I went through didn't have a good spin on it. It didn't look like it was going to end well, begin well, and everything in between made it feel like a, a, a volcano. But at the end of the day, I feel like faith got me through it, and you can't really show faith on film, in my opinion. It's a great answer. You know, you talked earlier kind of about this mentality of just tough it and get over it. Do you do you think that's improved since you were a kid? And and if so, how? And if not, how do you think we could make that better? I think it's regressed. I don't think it's improved. I don't think that you can make it, you know, tough it up and get through it. I don't think it's improved. I think it's regressed because now our kids are really soft. They don't have to interact. They don't have to go and say, hey, I think you're cute. Can I have your phone number? They just go sliding a DM on Instagram. The interaction, the talking, telephones are really made when you couldn't have a face-to-face -face conversation. And then when you couldn't really talk on the phone, then it went to text message. And when you couldn't text message for you, that time you were trying to a voice memo. And then now we got FaceTime. We got all these different things, but they're all secondary communication. So these kids are in a generation of TikTok, Instagram, streaming live, punch somebody in the face and videotape it and that's where they're at. So I don't feel like, I don't feel like the get tough and get through it is even appropriate anymore because people are pulling out guns and shooting because they don't want to fight. People are, you know what I mean? Bullying people because they don't have confidence in themselves. So I think to a certain degree, we're missing some of those fixtures in the neighborhood that would grab you by your ear and tell you sit your down. So Tyrone, as a society, how can we make it better? Society can make that better by accountability. I think accountability amongst people you love. If you like, like I said this a while ago, when someone hits you up with a message and they want to ask you a question, they have to one, be in a position where they even have the right to ask you that question, or you guys have that type of relationship where it's appropriate. Like my barber, I was cutting my hair and he started asking me, was I considering retirement? And I nicely and politely, because I've been knowing him for 20 plus years, so it's not in your position to ask me that question. If you was my mom, if you was my loved one, if you was my kids, if you was my coaches, and you saw me training, I looked like I was losing speed, and I looked like the younger kids was coming in, you know, having their way with me. At that point, one of those people have the floor, and they would be in right standing to ask me, you're not. But everybody's not going to communicate with people like that. So that's just the way that I carry myself, and that's just the way that I do things. But at the end of the day, you got to have someone that holds you accountable, a mother, a friend, a loved one. So therefore, if you get out of pocket and you start sliding a little bit, you can put yourself back in position. And I think the more we look at ourselves in the mirror, see our flaws, see what we're doing wrong, the less time we'll have to point fingers at other people and highlight where their shortcomings are, where they're messing up at. So that's that's what I would do, the accountability. Um, 
from the right people. Because I got a lot of people that be like, oh, man, you should do this. And oh, you should train with this person. You should go to You don't even know me. You don't even know what I did. All you know is what you saw. You saw the iceberg. You didn't see what was underneath. You didn't see the, you know what I mean? You didn't see how long it took me to get this ice to come out of the water. All you see is what's on top. One of the things we try to do is get people to ask for help. And if that means you can't ask your parents, ask a teacher. If you can't ask a teacher, ask a, a friend's parent or that sort of thing. So what advice would you give to a young person who's struggling with mental health but doesn't feel like they have anyone to talk to? If I was talking to a young person and I wanted to encourage them to be okay with talking about mental health, if they didn't have a, a friend, a family, a, a mom or dad to talk to, I definitely would grab one of their friends. And this kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier with accountability. If your friend is seeing signs of you having some anxiety, depression, mental health issues, um, suicidal or anything of that nature, then it's their job to really go and tell their parents or your parents or try to get you help. I feel like if your parents are seeing your behavior change, you're doing things out of the ordinary, you know, you miss a school, you're doing things that's just not really, not really in your style to do, they need to really take that precautiously. And I think what we have a problem with is we all are missing something. Something happened to us in life, some type of baggage, something's created us the way we are. We all are effed up in some area. And I think that when we don't deal with that, we kind of bottle it up. And if you don't know why you're doing something, you have not sat down and talked to a professional and let them basically listen to you unpack and unpack all the stuff you went to and say, you know what? Well, maybe you're acting like this because your father wasn't there. Your father didn't give you the affirmation. And now you're seeking the affirmation, but you're doing it in this type of way. So when you do this, this is everyone's response because you gave me a candy bar. So I gave you a dollar. I didn't know you wanted a hug. You know what I mean? So I think that that, that language that we speak to each other is one that's kind of broken just because what I say may have a different meaning because of where I'm from and where I've seen and what I've been through. But at the end of the day, if we just kind of just listen to the signs, because it's things that my son did that made me know that he needed to go see a counselor. And it's also an environment. You know, if you just went through a divorce, you know, if you just sat there and got evicted from a house, you know, if you was addicted to drugs and you weren't around your kids, you know, those things are going to have long-term trauma on them. And at that point, without even having a flag, you should be seeking some help. There's a lot of free help out there you can get. There's some discounted help. And some of us have insurance that would actually cover the help that you need to, to go and sit down and talk to somebody. Last question for me then is, um, what do you think are the main reasons that African-Americans specifically don't seek help? I think the main reason why African-Americans don't seek help when you're talking about mental illness and things of that nature because it's a form of weakness. Um, for so many years, really all the way back into slavery, you had to be tough. You were basically picked judge on how strong you are and how tough you are, and how much pain you can endure and crying and weeping and, and showing signs of quote unquote weakness wasn't allowed. So that just has been generationally passed along. And then if you think about gang affiliation and lower income housing, all those different areas, your, 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 your word is everything. Your the way you carry yourself is everything. And everything that you think about is all off respect. And sometimes the way you get respect is not by doing the, the most civil thing or the most ethical thing or the most moral thing. Sometimes it's beating somebody up. Sometimes it's 
you know what I mean, selling drugs. Sometimes it's, you know, being a professional athlete, all these different things randomly and unfortunately what was praised in those areas. So when you think about those things, that's that's an illusion. You are going to be hurt. You are going to be sad. You will get your, your heart broken. You will um, mourn a death. And it's okay. But once you have to be conditioned for so many years, for me, I grew up gangbanging. You couldn't cry. You wouldn't go like, oh, you got punched in the face, you're going to cry. Did it hurt? Yeah, but I'm going to punch him back harder. And I'm going to try to get him to the ground so I can kick him out. That's literally the way I thought. And those emotions wasn't really there like that. So to me, to just flip a switch and be like, oh, I love you and I'm compassionate. You cry and let me hug you and everything will be okay. It wasn't there. It wasn't there until I had my daughter and I was forced to love in a different way. And 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 I'm thankful for that. But the, in the African-American community, because I've been in the areas and I lived in, I lived in Ferguson, that's where I grew up at. And I'm telling you, nobody's in there crying and talking about, man, how you feeling? I don't want to be here today, man. My mom and the, who cares, man? Our lights cut off too. I gas cut off too. I ain't ate food in a, a couple of days either. Yeah, I've been eating crackers and freaking oatmeal and some random stuff too. Nobody really cared. We always going through the same shit. So <clears throat> that's just a, that's just something that once again I just know spirituality kind of brought me out of that and kind of allowed me to step out of. The, I'm in the conversation, but I can step out of it and kind of look at my situation from the outside in. Like, this is how I look in the situation right now. I don't want to argue with you anymore. I want to get out the phone. So then I'll give up. Or you win. You got it. You know what? You're right. Because at the end of the day, it don't matter who's right or wrong. But then I, I, I have enough, you know what I mean, talking with a counselor, enough life experience to recognize there's no winning. Everybody's going to lose right here. Just step out. At least don't lose my peace. But that's, that's something that's not really prevalent in the community from my experience. It's a great question. My my dad and I have this conversation a lot because I grew up in the just pull up your big girl panties and get over it because my dad grew up in the projects and he would say the same thing. He'd be like, you're upset because you don't have a new pair of shoes. I ate at Kool-Aid for an entire week. Right. <laughs> like He would say that. But that's that's how he grew up. And, and he's I'm trying to educate him on on, you know, why we need to have these conversations. But I didn't even get raised that way. So um, what advice would you give to teens who are struggling right now? Um, if there's any teens that are struggling right now, right now my advice is to recognize it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to look in the mirror and, you know what I mean, not like what you see because guess what? It takes a long time to get to the point where you just got the realization that you're perfect. God made you in a specific way. It may not be the same teeth set up or the nose set up or complexion or hair grade or whatever, somebody on your left or right, but he created you perfectly. And once you start learning who you are and start finding out why you were here, like for me, my purpose, why I'm here is very clear. So I walk with a certain level of confidence. And when I walk in the room, I demand it because you're not going to tell me I'm something. You're not going to tell me I'm not a champion. You're not going to tell me I'm inferior to you. You're not going to tell me I'm not intelligent. You're not going to tell me that I'm not an overcomer. Everything that you could try to tell me, I have enough confidence in who I am that it's going to cover any insecurities I have. It's going to cover any uncertainty that I have. So I would suggest you just recognize that it's okay and really get in your bag and get in your pocket and start finding out what God, find out what, this is a teenage version, find out what comes to you really easily that you look around and everybody has problems with. That's your gift. If it's music, if it's drawing, if it's the gift of gap, if it's problem solving, if it's analyzing, if it's figuring out numbers, you'll know at the teenage um, 
age, what things that just come to you more naturally. And that may be a gift and put some energy into it. Maybe a couple different and put energy in all of them because who's going to bet on you better than you yourself. You know what I mean? So that's what I would do. And, you know, don't let people tell you who they are. I know it's kind of tough when you're around a lot of people and they make fun of you and they say this about you and everybody laughing. It's so funny. And it's traumatizing. It's like hard to recover from that. But they may work for you down the road. They may need you for a long. Same person that was making fun of you may walk through your doors and need a job. And you got to be grounded enough to take the application anyway. So that's my that's my thing. That's what I would tell the teens. Well, thank you to Tyrone Woodley for joining me today and to everyone for listening. If you're looking for help with processing anxiety or have any other medical questions, please visit Providence.org. And for parents, teachers, and students looking for resources for your mental health and wellness, please visit WorkToBeWell.org. That's work, the letter 2, B-E, well.org. Thank you.